So Johnny, you ready to talk about the pleasures and pain of playing in a band? Is this an intervention? It might be. About how I behave as a band member? It was occasionally rough. It sure was, man. It took a long time for me to just say, I'll play it again. God. So have you thought about this concept of band dynamics or thought about it while you're in a band, the complexities of the relationship? I've changed the way I behaved as a result of my uh, introspection. I went from probably not actually knowing my part but refusing to play it more than once at rehearsal and being like, what the hell? Come on, we've got Gatorade and vodka. Let's get out of here, you know, to Mr. I will happily play that over and over and over again because I know your part's harder than mine, and you'd probably like to play it a few times. There are many lessons to be learned in rehearsal. Okay, as with many conversations about pop music, I think the Beatles are a good place to start. Now, that band was interesting because it featured two top dogs, which is unusual. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were the songwriters and drivers of the band's creative direction until later in the band's career when George Harrison grew into a good songwriter in his own right, giving the Beatles three top dogs in some sense. And I believe this change in dynamic contributed to the destruction of the Beatles. The initial dominus hierarchy was upset and the resulting chaos destroyed the band. Wow. I never thought about it like that. I just figured they they couldn't stand each other and had the option of an unquestionably successful solo career. And we're like, fine then, screw you. I agree, but just stay with the concept of the band dynamic. First of all, remember that it's unusual to begin with, having two top dogs. Most bands have an Elvis Presley or... A Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry. There you go. Chuck Berry and uh, who sang Pretty Woman. He was in the Traveling Wilburys late in his life. Yeah. His name was uh, Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison. Okay, so most bands have a Roy Orbison, a Chuck Berry, or an Elvis Presley. Most bands don't have a John Lennon and a Paul McCartney. Though that's the type of band that I'm most interested in. That sort of dynamic is a lot more compelling to me. Same here. I think that... Well, I mean, at the same time, the Rolling Stones had a couple people contributing to the songwriting as well, right? Mostly Keith and Mick. But they had creative input from Brian Jones. I I know less about the Rolling Stones. Me too. Let's just stick with the Beatle dynamic. Okay, so let's consider this weird setup. So you have these two top dogs, and then you have a protege who in the 10 years that the group was together really grew into his own, and by the end, he was just as good. Oh, yeah. For sure. He he reached God status right there with all of them. But let's take a look at the the Beatles in the mid-1960s, and there's another unusual dynamic that comes to play, and that is that their bass player happened to be the best guitar player in the band. Right. Now check out this account from their engineer, Jeff Emmerich, about the recording of the song Taxman. You know Taxman, right? I know the song Revolver. Yes. So in any case, Jeff Emmerich wrote this book about 10 years ago called Here, There, and Everywhere. And in his account of recording Revolver, he tells this uh, pretty interesting uh, situation that occurred because George Harrison was having trouble with the solo. So anyways, here's Emmerich on the matter. 
There was a bit of tension on the session, though, because George had a great deal of trouble playing the solo. In fact, he couldn't even do a proper job of it when we slowed the tape down to half speed. After a couple of hours of watching him struggle, both Paul and George Martin started becoming quite frustrated. That was, after all, a Harrison song, and therefore not something anyone was prepared to spend a whole lot of time on. So George Martin went into the studio and, as diplomatically as possible, announced that he wanted Paul to have a go at the solo instead. I could see from the look on Harrison's face that he didn't like the idea one bit, but he reluctantly agreed and then proceeded to disappear for a couple of hours. He sometimes did that, had a bit of a sulk on his own, then eventually came back. Whatever private conversation he would have with John or Paul upon his return occurred in the corridor, where none of us could hear. Sometimes Ringo would be part of the conference, but more often he would stay in the studio with Neil and Mal. That was the roadies. Until the storm had blown over. Paul's solo was stunning in its ferocity. His guitar playing had a fire and energy that his younger bandmates rarely matched, and was accomplished in just a take or two. It was so good, in fact, that George Martin had me fly it in again during the song's fade-out. So that's pretty interesting. It's an example of a, a... One of your band members is just so much better than you that there's... The producer has to step in and say, listen, he's got to... Somebody else has to play the solo. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, Paul was super talented at, at an early age. I think eventually everybody catches up, even in musicianship. I don't know, man. Yeah, I, mean, the, I think George, George caught did, up. and John... This was 65, and he was the youngest right. Beatle. Well, you think about, they gave John that. It's, it wasn't a bass guitar, but it was a baritone guitar. Yeah, like on when, Let It Be. Man, he, he could rep that. They were all very, very, very talented. But Paul was just a freak, because when he was young, he was probably the best bass player and rock and he may have been the best guitar player in rock and he was the up best up until the, the mid 60s i'm saying there was a couple yeah. a, a year or two and where is true and he was also the best looking man in rock oh i don't know yeah don't let's not come on now uh, hold on and there was one I'm more elvis was probably the most handsome man on the planet at the moment oh yeah damn all right, well, he was pretty close. And because of that, I forgot the fourth thing that he was. So let's see, bass. Oh, and singer. I mean, my God, it, he could sing really well. He could probably play piano. Okay, so this sets, let's stay on the dynamics then. So imagine yeah. a band dynamic set up with this man, or, or even set up with John Lennon, who was equally a virtuoso, but in a, a different avenue. But as far as playing the, the instruments go... It was Paul McCartney was the king of the Beatles, and he didn't even play guitar. You know, on stage, he didn't do any of the guitar playing. Right. That's a... Uh, I don't know how to comment on that dynamic. Because... I, I, good. I'm glad that people could, could handle that. I'm, and I'm sure he was an egomaniac. But how did that turn out? It turned out great because if they had had a poor bass player, like their first bass player, Stuart Sutcliffe, who was very poor at playing bass... Right. They would not have been the tight little crack and rock band that they were. Uh, yeah, and they wrote songs, and their voices were so great together. Yeah, so let's stay on this dynamic, though, of, of having two top dogs and then a rising star. 
Okay. And then, um, you know, let's, let's not forget about Ringo, but, you know, Ringo is, is a bit player. He, he knew his role and he played it well. But the more interesting thing from my point of view is John, Paul, and George. Right. The rise of George. Yeah. I think that uh, for they they had a healthy rivalry that sparked how many songs? You know what I mean? Those two, the top dogs. We'll start with the top dogs, okay? They had a real healthy egomaniacal rivalry about creating. And not only just between the two of them, but they would get into, I mean, John Lennon would get in other bands' faces and be like, here, I'll sell you a hit, boy. He'd say stuff like that. He'd. They were they were nutty competitive. I want to be your man, which was one of the first Rolling Stones hits, was written by John and Paul. Right in front of them, basically. Yeah. I I think they were. Paul and John were having a drink or something, and they got a phone call, from the guy who was trying to manage the Stones. So they came down, and they were like, "We're, we're having trouble. We need a song." And John was like, "Ah, you can have this one." Could you imagine? Yeah. Fuck this song. Yeah. I don't. I, they're both good versions. I like the Beatles version way better. I do too. But they gave it to Ringo to sing. Yeah, and I still like it better. Yeah, that's what. I, that's how that puts it into perspective of what John thought of the song, and it's a great song. And he just tossed it to Mick Jagger and said, "Here you are, peasant. Have a hit." Yeah. So you have this set up, and then you have someone who writes. He was writing songs from the first albums. George Harrison was. He wrote "Don't Bother Me." Which is, eh, it's all right. I like it better than a couple of his other efforts, but it's not very good. Yeah, yeah. He wrote Tax Man. Yeah, but that was four years later. Oh, I don't know. Any uh, three years later? Yeah, the early '60s stuff. I think I skipped through at this point in my life. Even, we should even John and Paul songs. I think I know them pretty well. Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah, their covers are amazing. Yeah, especially. Yeah, yeah. So then. Um, you have John and Paul, and they, they're they competing with the rock and roll universe, and they're winning. They're winning, and George Harrison is learning, but when they're in the studio, you just got to give the guitar to the guy that can play it better, and that's that's a hard lesson to learn. I have usually have been the best player in the bands I've been in, yeah. but I can imagine that that's probably difficult if... I had written a song and I was trying to play a solo, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Yeah, listen, we're gonna give uh, we're gonna give Johnny a crack at this." Right. And then you're like, oh, "I got it," and you play it perfectly or in a take or two. Right. You'd be all right with that because you know that I'd make a dick joke and we'd hug and play shoving buddies and move on. Well, this is what I think happened, and I've been here before, George Harrison. He was focused so much on writing Taxman which included singing it. So you and I just played a song, and there was a couple things that I needed to work on uh, singing-wise. So like I had stopped thinking about guitar for all of that, except for a couple of small little things. So you can imagine in the studio, and it's like whatever, how many hours they were spending on Taxman. He was just like singing, 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 get it right, get it sound good. And then all of a sudden they're like, all right, singing's over. Right, time to play that guitar solo, and he had like, uh, oh, the, the guitar solo. Oh man, I never thought about that. So he had to make that up, kind of on the spot. Yeah, and it just wasn't happening, and, and it wasn't happening. Yeah. And not to mention that, just to get time in the studio, at that point, he's like a three-year-old with a coloring book walking up to John and Paul, saying, "Can you, 
you hang this on the fridge, pops? You know what that's I mean? That's right. Emmerich mentioned that, yeah, too. It was a George Harrison song, so that meant that they were like, uh, okay, what are we going to do? Let's do it. Come, Come on, on got let's, it. let's knock this out. Yeah, let's knock this down. Yeah, and they, were, they did it with zero tact and probably in an actual degrading fashion. Yeah, well, I mean, they were pals, but, you know, they knew who was top dog. Yeah, well, I don't mean to say they did it on purpose, but they were probably very just direct and they came in and nailed their parts and then that wasn't getting done so they tossed a guitar to paul he nailed it you know that bruises george's ego and uh, they move on and continue to be bazillionaires so i think it's probably okay it's an interesting band dynamic that's for sure and the next band that i'd like to talk about has a similar dynamic which is to say more than one member who occupies the spotlight which is always way more compelling to me so the group I'm talking about is The Band, which is the 1960s group with Levon Helm and Rick Danko and Richard Manuel, uh, made famous by the song The Weight is probably their most famous song. I agree. But they have a lot of great songs. And before they were the band with that hyper unoriginal name, they were the backup band for this guy named Ronnie Hawkins, who was like a Canadian rock star. In the, in the early, in the mid-60s. But there, there came a time when the members of the band started to part ways with Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins would show up sometimes, but usually just for the weekend gigs, and they, they were left on their own to handle all the gigs they had. So that meant that Lee Von Helm, who was the drummer, Richard Manuel, who was the, the piano player, and Rick Danko, who was the bass player, had to step up. So I have... Levon Helm's uh, autobiography, which is called This Wheels on Fire, Levon Helm and the Story of the Band. And he's got a, a pretty interesting uh, take on this. And I, I find a lot to connect about this dynamic. So here's Levon Helm in This Wheels on Fire. So if Ronnie wasn't coming that night, it was up to the three of us to sing and pass it around. Richard carried the main load, so we were home free. A lot of people who saw us in those days thought it was Richard's band. Then Rick and I would throw in the extra tunes of the set. So we were all singing and playing instruments. And to our minds, this was the basis for a new kind of band, one without a frontman. So this was happening sort of simultaneously with the Beatles. That the band was becoming the band without Ronnie Hawkins. And the Beatles were, were showing the world that you could have a frontman-less band. Right. And it's a new dynamic. And I don't think it's one that exists too much anymore. I mean, I guess a couple bands have it. But I'm, let's take into consideration some modern bands, say Metallica, say Radiohead. They have clear figureheads. Yep. Yeah, for sure. There's not two guys in Radiohead. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah, there's, I mean, uh, I mean, the rest of the members play very, very important roles. But as far as the creative drive and the voice, right. it's all Tom York. Right, for sure. Um, sometimes they put these fun little super groups together and have, and have at it. And I don't really listen to any of it. Like, man, um, who has two guys? The Avett brothers or the, the, those two guys sing. Right. Are they still playing? I don't know. They're, they're really good. I like some of their songs. I, I haven't heard anything from them or about them in 10 years. There isn't one, is there? Not that it is readily available huh. on, on my hard drive. That's sad. 
Well, maybe it's just not uh, profitable. But it's been the kind of band that I've had the most pleasure playing in. So Same. our bands from the past and the bands that I'm most interested in generally have this dynamic. And what, what is compelling to you about this? About the band dynamic? Multiple top dogs. Everyone playing an instrument, no yahoos holding the microphone. That's important to me. It means that everybody's doing their fair share. I just sound so bad. No, it's it's completely true. Right, yeah. It really does mean that um, unless the singer's, you know, has a salami in his pants and can, you know, has an amazing range and maybe operatically tra- trained, you'd put Freddie Mercury out in front of your band. But here's the thing. Freddie Mercury played piano. piano yeah. He also played guitar. Oh. So he was like, I'll stand and sing some songs. Now I'm sitting crushing the piano. Now I'm going to play some acoustic guitar. So amen, brother. You know, he, uh, this is, I'm not... I'm they, not criticizing him. He did dabble in everything. But there are front men that don't do this and are. I, I'm generally skeptical of them. And here's why. I find singers who are also playing rhythm instruments, say piano or rhythm guitar or bass, generally have better time. They make their melodies and their phrasing a little more locked in. I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking on a turn here, but uh, it seems impossible to even operate as a singer unless you are mechanically connected to your instrument play. Uh, that makes a lot... I've never thought about it like that, but that makes a lot of sense. Consider James Hetfield. Uh, okay. He, yeah, he is a robot on the guitar and singing. He's got it... You're yeah, right. I, I can't imagine someone singing anything like that if they weren't also playing what he's playing. And it would be less good. It would be something like Bruce Dickinson, who I, I just like some of that that squirrely, willy nilly heavy metal singing. Yeah, I, I could do without. Yeah. Even, I like I like a lot of Iron Maiden songs, but he's just not. He's not in the same pocket. No, you're right. Um, it, but here's how about a flip sider? Okay, are you ready for this? Uh, yeah, sure. Van Halen could not ex- exist without a front man. Yeah. A special situation similar to Freddie Mercury in that David Lee Roth was a tremendous showman. He did. He played. He played the katanas. <laughs> I don't know what that is. They're uh, uh, samurai swords, I think. You remember a video? He was swinging a sword around, and when he was swinging a stick around, and then he was doing crazy kicks and popping balloons or something. All right. Bit of an outlier there. Though you have to admit, he is the poster child for willy-nilly, squirrely singing. Right. He's not usually tight in the pocket. And I don't listen to Van Halen because David Lee Roth is an excellent singer. What about Zeppelin? Same thing, man. That guy says baby way too many times. I mean, I I like Led Zeppelin. (laughs) And I think that Robert Plant is very talented for his own right. But man, pick up something and learn it. For example, Eddie Vedder. You know that for like the last 15 years, he's been woodshedding guitar and ukulele. He's like, he can play really good fingerstyle guitar now. Right. And he can play ukulele. So he has shed this problem as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I wish that every lead singer would do something like that. Well, you wish that, you know, and you just want them to, that's where you start to say, all right, respect. Right. I guess so. Yeah. Well, I mean, me too. 
I, I don't like, <clears throat> but I, I think Robert Plant just could sing. Okay. He never said anything profound. No, it was, it was all Lord of the Rings weirdness. Yeah, it was either, you know, uh, <clears throat> about the Misty Mountains and Gollum, or it was just completely obvious dick innuendo, you know? Those were the two things. They, or they did old school blues songs, and they just used those lyrics. Yeah, no, I don't want to take away from Led Zeppelin at all. They were great. That band dynamic is a different one right. than the one that we're, that we're talking about here. It's a compelling one. Many people find that to be the primary format of a band. Right. But I don't. I don't either. I would have liked to have seen Robert Plant play, you know, something. A man. rhythm guitar. Or yeah, every once in a while, it's just strum some guitar. Even at the late stage, Motley Crue, Vince Neil picked up a guitar and played some chords. Did so, he really? Yeah, he played some guitar in a couple of songs on Dr. Feelgood. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Respect. Vince Neil. Yeah, but then it, I, don't, I don't think he stopped eating sandwiches long enough to keep practicing. Were there, there weren't too many like real metal bands that had just a frontman lead singer, were they, that you listened to? Heavy metal or t- traditional hard rock? Because traditional hard rock is loaded with that. Yeah, format. no, I mean heavy metal like Slayer. Yeah, I, I think that what I'm talking about where you have to be in the pocket in order to operate as a singer, best I think is really represented in heavy metal. Yeah. So those bands are almost exclusively the format that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Or, or Winger. No, I'm kidding. I listened to that album. Which one? The one with Steve I. No, not Winger. Oh, you're, uh, White we're talking Snake. about Whitesnake, yeah. Sorry about and that. And what did you think about that? It was amazing. I told you. I also listened to Nuno Betancourt's guitar solo on the Extreme song called... Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Also amazing. Yeah. Nice. Good. I hope other people did too. And no, those were good suggestions. Yay. I don't have any more today, but I want now. I want to give you more. Most of the things I'm listening to are covers I'm learning and jokes. I I really just go to YouTube and put in a comedian and just let it run and listen to all their stuff. It's a lot like music performance, being a comedian. It's a lot harder. Yeah, in some ways. One is it's bad form to retell your jokes. Yeah. After you've released an album. Well, okay. I have a question. Do you like the Eagles? I do. Do you like Crosby, Stills, Nash? I do, but a little bit less. The Who had two guys? Writing songs is that true? But one, I mean, I don't Pete know. Townsend, but he, there was Roger Daltrey was the he was just guy. a front yeah. guy, huh? So out of, out of that list that you just mentioned, the, the Eagles are the most compelling to me. Yeah, but they were they were put together as well. I mean, they just joined forces as joined front forces. Men. Yeah, that's, that's what true. I'm talking about. That's always going to give you the best band. They're going to sing the best harmonies, and your songs are going to be pared down to the best of the best. Right. That's true. Yeah. That wow, I see. It's so much better like that. You think about things that I don't think about it because I get into the situation where it's not all on me and I feel comfortable and I go, All right, man. Sweet. This is where I this is perfect. I what what I gotta learn these awesome songs that somebody else wrote and we're gonna play my songs and they think my songs are awesome too. 
you know. Well, there's a certain amount of fatigue that sets in if you have to write all nine songs of your album, and songs begin to lose quality. So if you can just focus on a few good songs of your own, and then collaborate with your bandmates on the other songs, the end product is going to be better. Right. And that does take, you know, stuffing your ego a little bit uh, into your pockets and going in. I mean, I don't know. I never... Did you ever think I had an ego about songwriting with with anything? With, no. With, me either. I liked it. I was always... That's what I always wanted to do. Because there was no way I could do my songs without really competent singers and players. It's almost the best. Right. Okay. And if you're just hiring sidemen, then you're just you're gonna get a less good product. Yeah. Right. Okay, so let's go on to a couple of specific areas of band dynamics. I wrote down a list here, but I'm sure there are many more topics we could cover. But what about rehearsal preparedness? as far as the relationship with your band members go. I can tell you what my experience is here, and that is that I've spent many rehearsals being angry and frustrated with my band members because I had spent plenty of time rehearsing, but they had failed to do so. Um, have you ever been on the other side of it where you were unprepared and people got pissy? A couple times, but not nearly as many. Right. Um... Would you say that I have come in an unprepared manner? Yes. Did you? But yeah. not all the time. Sometimes you were prepared. Many did times I, you weren't. Did I steadily become more um, reliable? Use, yeah, reliable. You did. Everyone grows up. Right. Was oh. I? Was I? I okay. What, take me back to what you said. Coming to rehearsal prepared, and your ah. band members were unprepared. Right. Um, yeah. And when I was younger, I would have instantly started to insult them and just said, you know, started to maybe try to show them their part, which was, is a total dick move. And now I would just I be don't like, think so. You don't think just grabbing their instrument and be like, this is what you're. you're not grabbing their instrument, but you could show them on your instrument. Oh, like, well, okay. It's like this, man. I mean, it's all about your. Your attitude, if you're a Boy right. Scout about it, if you're right. friendly, courteous, and kind. Hey, let me help you out with that part. Right. Well, that's how I am now. But yeah. back uh, a while, you know, back in when I was younger, yeah, I was... Well, then if you're doing it in a, an emotional and snarky way, then yeah, you're hurting people's feelings. Right. Either way, I mean, it's it's a tough thing to go into. You know, don't shame them. You're, they're already probably feel ashamed. But nowadays, if I get to a a situation like that, I'll just say, well, let's take a time right now to get you one up to speed. And then from there, we'll, we'll, we'll proceed and I'll do what that takes. But from now on, could you pretty please try to be more prepared? Now I don't have a leg to stand on because I show up quite often having not even listened to what this week, for example, I had listened to the song that we recorded many times and played it on bass many times. You, you, you were much more prepared this yeah, week. Yeah, right. And I can't promise you that whatever song we pick next week, that I'll, I'll be totally prepared. Because um, I don't have an excuse. I like to blame it on my kids, but I don't have an excuse Well, that's for the that. next thing I was going to say is schedule conflicts. And I think that this is part of the reason why rehearsal preparedness is not always what it should be. 
uh, you're trying to schedule a rehearsal, but somebody's got to work, somebody has some obligation, and it's very difficult. Then all of a sudden, you're, you're meeting at like 10 p.m. on a Wednesday or something. Right. So it's hard not to show up unprepared to that. That is true. Um, it's I would say it's a lot easier for bands who are either young and dumb and all live in the same house or bands that are making money and they don't have jobs. But if you are juggling, you know, members with jobs, members with children, members with uh, personality defects of, of, of all kinds, it, you it's it's really frustrating. Not to mention if you're going out even if you're playing well and getting gigs, not making a lot of money, it, it's a it's a it's a tough one. It's a relationship that rivals spousal relationships. What I mean is is it's complicated, and it's hard not to get emotional, and people get angry, and upset, and it's difficult to maintain schedules, and sometimes it seems like a Sisyphusian nightmare. I'm just rehearsing for the next gig. You got to do five rehearsals and. Half of them are productive. And then finally make it to the gig. And then that brings me up to my next topic here, which is gig day courtesies. How the gig day proceeds. Then there's that, and then it's more or less disappointing. You get home late, and the boulder has rolled down to the bottom of the mountain. So what do you think about these these gig day scenarios? I, I always enjoyed gigs. Which is probably why I was a shitty bandmate, because I would uh, perform. Now, come on, man! On a scale of one to ten, on a general basis, I've been I've been a twelve on stage for a long time, straight, sober, prepared, whooping ass. Yes, as soon as sobriety overtook you, right? Your uh, stage play has been. Uh, impeccable. But there was also a time where I would make sure to stay sober through through the show, and as soon as it was over, it was rage on, baby. And I had some catching up to do, which is which is a bad idea. Yeah. And then I wouldn't help anybody carry stuff or or you know go around shaking hands. Even first and foremost, uh, show up early. Don't be a a bum. Uh, be yeah, positive. Help, help carry. Help carry. Hey, bring drinks. You know what I mean? Bring some waters for everybody. Coffee, uh, donuts, be in a good mood. Yeah, being in a good mood is half the battle. So when we played in a band with Brett Staggs, that was a, a real quiver in our arrow, or however that metaphor works. He was always so uh, pleasant to be around that it, it made the whole experience that much better. That's that's right. That did. I mean, he, when you walk into the room and there's that... The big smile, and he's like a, he's literally like, you know, a, a rainbow basket filled with teddy bears. He's so fun. You just want to play with him. And that's it's true. true. I, I haven't met anyone like him. Nope. I'm like the opposite. You walk in the room, and you're like, how are you doing, you're Johnny? Like a basket and I'm like, filled with heroin needles yeah, I'm and like, dirt. Hey, how are you, Johnny? And I'm like, fuck you, man. I ripped my fingernail off, and you don't even, you don't even want to know. Yeah, that's that's how our conversation started today when he got here. Yeah, for sure. It's never. You're it's, telling me about the shitty things that happened to you. I was yeah. like, man, wow. Yeah, but that then I, hurt. I I quickly got into well, let's set up and do this. No, you've, you've we've been doing good ever since. Yeah, very but, efficient. But no, you're you, even 
not everybody is is that dynamic of a personality that it's that can can literally affect three or four other people for the better. Yeah, he could start a cult. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should do that. Yeah, but we should encourage Brett to start a cult. Right. And then we'll just rally behind it with the musical accompaniment. We'll be the band and we'll never drink Kool-Aid. We'll just keep taking their money. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I need y'all to do tonight. Tonight I need you to go <laughs> and break into cars and take quarters, pills, purses, take it all and bring it back to us at our next show. They get the lay of the hands on. Right. Know, something of Brett's. Right. One of his shirts. Right. <laughs> like an Elvis scarf. Yeah. Like a sweaty scarf you can give to someone. You can lay hands. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so anyways, moving from gig day courtesies, let's go to uh, rehearsal behaviors. But So back to rehearsals and specifically uh, partying instead of practicing. Now, this is a common issue, and, and we haven't been innocent of this problem. But it, it certainly exists to a greater extent in some bands. What is your experience here? When we first started as Grand Vision Channel in the shop, what was that, like 2001? It was 2000. 2000? It was very late 1999. Uh, we recorded that demo without you. Right. And then you joined in January. Okay. I think that we were hanging out in December of 99. Right. With, uh, we all drank. We got together for rehearsal, and we rehearsed until we couldn't play anymore because we were drunk. And but we were really good, and I think I kept saying, "Let's go play out." We're we have a bunch of songs we can play. I thought we were ready, and then we went out and played, and I was right. Remember going out and kicking ass? I don't. I remember going out and having some embarrassing shows. Uh, I thought that the the partying caught up with us, and that we weren't as rehearsed as we thought we were. Well, that's where I guess that's where we differ. Because, uh, what shows do you remember being good? I remember the first thing that we did. I'm, so, I'm talking about GVC one. I yeah, know, me I too. I know GVC two had good moments, but GVC one was a, a sort of never-ending train wreck, as far as I remember. Man, I remember going to an open mic for the first time we'd ever been in front of people and smashing shit. I also yeah, remember we had a couple good open mic sets at Esta Esta, but I don't think that counts. I, well, I also remember when that's all we did, it counts. And I also remember okay, going yeah. to IUP and throwing down like gentlemen a couple times, right? Did we play in IUP Unplugged? It was at a competition? Yeah. We took second. That's right. Yeah. We took second to Shell. Remember that? I do remember. Okay. And uh, that, was, that was good. But, was but very good that was performance. We were, uh, there were, were only two songs that we had to play. We played three sets there one night as that band. We did. I don't remember Radiohead. that. Yeah, we did for sure. Oh, I have, vaguely I do. Yeah, we did in front of several people. And I thought we did well. Now, when we got the GBs. Bring it back to the rehearsal behaviors and, and uh, okay. partying too much. Right. Yeah. So anyways, in summary, I, I thought that that band was, maybe we did party too much in rehearsal. In retrospect, I mean, we're not a band anymore, and that's the number one reason. Yeah, so uh, glad we got that figured out. Yeah. It's it's fun to get together with your boys, have uh, the beverage of your choice. It sure is. It's a great time, and it's it's called an intoxicant for a reason. It's intoxicating, and sometimes you will write a song and 
and it'll be a great song when you hear it the next day. I have no regrets there. It was a good time. Right. We did write... It wasn't meant to be a professional outlet. It was meant to be what it was. It helped uh, uh, several people take a big step in their musical journey. It helped me write songs. It helped, uh, you know... For me personally, I had just gotten out of uh, a a three-piece, wild, fusion, hippie jam band that, you know, I played six-string bass a bazillion miles an hour in. And then, you know, I, I got with you guys next. Yeah, Distant Wailing and Adam Gisson with Mo Heine. You guys were real good. That You guys made an album that is still, I bet you, I bet you holds up. Probably. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I was, haven't heard it in 10 years. Or more, I haven't heard it in a long really time. Good. But uh, that's where I'd come from. And then I had, you know, I've been writing songs, but at that point, we Adam Kissin was the, the guy driving that train. So he wrote the songs and we, we went out and we were good live. Yeah, for so sure. when you joined GBC, you were coming off this experience. Yes. Which maybe wasn't as much of a party bus, or, or maybe it was. I don't know. It was a different kind of party bus, and it was a different dynamic because I went from being the youngest, probably guy in the band, to being the oldest. So there's another thing that you brought up about the band dynamic, and that is hanging out with your pals and having the intoxicant and uh, the boys' club mentality that fig- that sort of surrounds the whole band dynamic and the way that wives and girlfriends universally despise bands if you're in them my experience has been that like leaving to go to band rehearsal is i mean you might as well have just told her that she looks fat i've been through both my wife now god she's so awesome she just tells me to go and she knows that i'm not going to do anything stupid and then i will be home that the same night 99 percent of the time um, but yeah, it's not, but you've encountered this before though, right? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Because I was doing st- stupid shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you're using your band t- to party and then you got that, think about you hear athletes when they retire, you're like, what, what are you going to miss the most? And they all say, just be in the locker room the with boys the guys, club. man. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, one. Probably one of my, you know, when they say you're, you're dying and you, you, your life flashes before your eyes, I'm going to stop and really, really enjoy a couple nights that me, you, and Brett had at his house with a whole bunch of alcohol. And those were some splendid evenings. I, I agree. Some really nice times. But we didn't have memories. a show that night. I agree that there's something to the dynamic and the relationship that's pretty special and makes it a lot like a romantic relationship in a completely different angle. It's sort of like the same emotional center of your brain is getting tapped when you have this uh, close set of friends and you can make music together and have a good time. Yes. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. It's uh, it's very close to a an erotic feeling. To be honest with you, it's that, it's that close of a relationship where th- people are on are so intimately connected that they're making this shit happen. And it's, you know, I don't know. I've never orgasmed yeah, during no, this. Yeah, no, well, it's not, it's not so close to, it's just a metaphor, but it, it is really similar. I've gotten emotional and started crying. Yeah, I'm saying it's, it's got the same emotional weight yeah, yeah. in a different direction. For sure. 
and just in just such a joyous way because, you know, we're doing this. And that's, I guess, you know, that's the best part about it, probably. And now maybe going on stage and just yeah, pounding you know, a set. Yeah, there's the orgasm for you. Yeah, then it does have the, you know, the train comes back to the station. If you're in the right situation, you go, you're going to have an orgasm if you play hard enough. Um, Use protection, gang. Maybe your method of bass playing differs from mine. Anywho, how about another dynamic? Yeah, I think I've exhausted my preparation. Okay. But uh, I'm willing to entertain any thoughts you have on the matter. I would like to say, as far as our dynamic, um, we've always been friends, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, we've been pals since we met. There have been a, a stretch where we haven't spoke and we haven't talked to each other. You do do live in a different state, right? But it hasn't been very many. It wasn't really. like I was like, "Fuck you!" I'm not talking to you anymore. It's just you know, life comes at you full force, and everyone's busy. That's what I'm saying. You are the kind of friend that if I didn't talk to you for ten years, as soon as we got together, we'd point way too hard at something and start just instantly be right back to where we were because we are. That kind of, of bros. Is this is this your drink here? Yeah, uh, is that that one? I agree, man. And the same way with Kenny, and the same way with Brett, and really it's the same way with me and Mo. Yeah, it was nice seeing Mo. I yeah. saw him about two months ago. I like to hang out with that guy. Yep, and that's uh, there's a lot of guys that I played with that I really admired and liked hanging out with, but there's no, I mean. You just can't hang out because yes. Yeah, let's let's do the acknowledgements, right? There's a Justin Nepshield, right? And Tim Fitzgerald, for sure. Adam Gesson was sometimes great to hang out with, and sometimes, but I, I mean, I, sometimes I was a nightmare to hang out with too. Yeah, that's right. See, and I still talk to Adam, and we'll probably try to do a little something somewhere down the road. But you know, right now my life's so wacky, crazy. Uh, I can only focus on the most important things in life. Like getting together to rehearse an original set and then going to play a show at, at the Howlers or something, that whole exercise has diminishing returns from the very first note. I would get together and rehearse a set to go play at PNC Park. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Johnny. Until next time. Thanks for having me, Brian. Bye, everybody.